Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you the speaker presentations from the 2023 East End Conference. Organized by Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth, and Carl Kopek, who also acted as MC for the event, took place on the 7th and 8th of October at the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street, in the heart of the East End of London. An audience with Donald Rumbelow. I'll wait till everyone sat down before we start. Thank you, everyone. Welcome to the 2023 East End Conference. On behalf of Adam, Andrew, Mark and myself, we're delighted to invite you back here for this conference. It's the fifth time I've been here, third as host. Still petrified, to be honest. Um, and also thank you to the Astronomer Pub for uh, allowing us to come back again. It's a venue steeped in its own history. Probably. Um, it's not. It was called Astral House. It was built in 1896 and used to be the board for the Jewish Guardians, I've discovered since. Um, we've got three talks today um, and three tomorrow. So today we've got uh, Don, we've got Jonathan and Sarah talking about various things, including uh, Edward Buckley and the booth map. There'll be lots of questions for me about the booth map, Adam. Lots. Hope you haven't got any plans for the rest of the day based on that. Um, it's not the only thing we've got, though. We've got um, uh, Adam's Walk tonight, which is 7.30 from Altar Valley Park, and that's going to end at the White Hart Pub. The White Hart by the Blind Beggar, not the other one. Okay, that's the main thing. Um, that's going to be a tour of East End sites, not the usual ones, not always the usual ones anyway, so that should be very interesting. Um, there will be plenty of time for drinking throughout that as well, I imagine, so that shouldn't be a problem. Speaking of drunk people lurking through the East End, Susie, <laughs> your curry night is tomorrow. So it's going well. <laughs> Only a couple of curry houses in the East End. <laughs> okay. If you're going to Susie's Curry, for some reason I've not been invited, I will um, uh, please speak to Susie about that. And while I'm talking to you, Susie, um, you're covering this for the magazine, aren't you? For the review, yeah. So if you don't want to be mentioned in this for any reason, that's perfectly fine. But can you please tell Susie, based on what I've just said, maybe I should be one of those people. Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, we have the photo competition we've had. Where is Mark? Eight entries, I think we've got so far, but that's closed now. It's closed. The photo competition is closed. We'll be announcing the winner of that. If you want to see the winner of last year's, which Steve won, it's in the inside cover of the booklet. So you can go and see that. Um, there'll be the raffle today as well. The charity this year is the Alzheimer's Society. Um, so buy lots and lots of raffle tickets because it's all going to a great course. Uh, there's some fantastic um, uh, lots here to win. Lots, if that's the word. Um, you, the usual book of licentious material, Avi. But Abby likes to win. 
But there's also this, this is my favourite, this is the Football Association Youth International, England against Wales from the county ground, Northampton, March the 19th, 1996, sorry, 1966. Uh, the um, playing for England as a left-sided centre-back was Bedford Town's very old Trevor Marriott. So you can win Trevor Marriott's football programme from 1966. It's my absolute favourite. Where can you buy tickets for this, I hear from the crowd? Where can you buy tickets? Mark Ripper has the tickets, everybody. So, so please buy that. Please buy lots of them. I've never won a thing in five years, so um, please take my money. Um, there's a bit of housekeeping before we start. Um, the bar, if you show your badges at the bar, it means that basically there's a tab that we've arranged with this for the event, not for you personally. So don't think, I'm with the convention, I'll have seven pints of this, please. Susie. Um, <laughs> So please say that you do have to pay for your drinks, but if you can show your badge, it makes us the organisers, it makes us come back and we don't have to pay for thousands of pounds. That'd be quite nice if you could do that um, and try the pies. Can I ask you um, if you've got your phones with you, can you have them on silent or airport mode? Um, so, you know, it, it also looks a bit rude if people are reading their phone while people are talking, unless Liverpool are playing tomorrow. Um, and as regards questions, apart from the first section, can we ask you to keep your questions till the very end, rather than interrupting the talks? And I will get around to you, just put your hand up and um, I will ask that question. Okay, is that everything? I think that's everything. Our first speaker tonight. It's not actually a talk, it's going to be a chat. So we will be taking questions throughout this talk. Um, there's just too much to say to introduce you, Don. There's just too much to say. So can I... Somebody's teeth is running. So if I can give you that, Don. Oh, Ladies and gentlemen, Donald Rumbelow. Thank you. That should do it. Uh, no, we can sit down. We can sit down, we're very refined. So what we're going to do, Don, is just basically have a chat about your career, what you've done, your reflections on the entire well, on your entire career. I was going to read out your list of publications and the things you've done, yeah. but we will be here till this afternoon. Had to be done that. Right. It's been a bit of a. When did this all this stop? All this start for you, particularly with the ripperology side of things. Um, I joined the city police in '63, and I was based at Snow Hill Police Station. And I'm a Londoner by adoption, my hometown is Cambridge. And I quickly got interested in London history, which is why I'd actually joined the City of London Police, because the city at that time, a lot of it was still bombsite. Barbican didn't exist. That was, that was bombsite, and you could actually stand on Barbican and look straight through to St Paul's Cathedral with nothing blocking your view. Um, so I started reading up about London history, and my sergeant discovered that I was getting interested in London history, and he used to have, when the a new intake of uh, probationary constables came in, they always went to the School of Instruction, which was at the rear of uh, Bishopsgate Police Station. And uh, he said, I have to talk to them about London history. So he said, uh, it's a bit boring, I tell them about roads, and they have this construction of roads. And I said, nothing else? No, just roads. I'll get them to draw sections of Roman roads. But you can make, you can take over, you can do it, make it a bit more interesting. 
Oh, right. So I found myself lecturing on London history, mugging up everything I could before going to give the talks, and that's how I got interested. Now, at one time, there had been a museum it's at, uh, at uh, Bishopsgate Police Station in what was the School of Instruction, where these classes took place. And the museum would been broken up by a chief inspector. Don't want this rubbish here. Don't want any of this nonsensical stuff here. He sent in one afternoon, and this is what I heard, a squad of cadets, 15, 16-year-olds, and just said, just stuff the thing in boxes and just leave them. And that's where the seed, the, the from hell letter disappeared, because it was on display in the force training centre, and a number of other things disappeared as well. And they were relegated to the top floor, the attic room of Snow Hill Police Station. Now, my sergeant, uh, he was in charge of the museum, but there was no museum, it was just cardboard boxes and junk in an upstairs room at Snow, uh, Snow Hill Police Station. And one day I went up there, and uh, there was these boxes outside, these cardboard boxes, and uh, they were the investigation papers for the Siege of Sydney Street, for the Houndsditch uh, murders and the Siege of Sydney Street. So I asked, what were they doing there? I was told, oh, more bloody papers. They're being thrown away. They're going in the furnace. They're going in the shredders. Now, I'd already in investigated the basement of Old Jury uh, headquarters, and I'd taken out letters to the governor of Newgate about executions. I used to go down there and raid this with rubbish sacks. So with these cardboard boxes and these dirty papers, I thought, well, we can't. What do I do with them? So I thought, well, I'll take them home. And uh, <laughs> that's, what, that's what I did. And later on, wrote a book about <laughs> the, the Siege of Sydney Street. All those papers are now in um, the uh, London Metropolitan Archives. <laughs> but that's where they went. But Jack the Ripper... Uh, sorry, I've got sidetracked there. <laughs> no, no, believe me. I, um, I will ask about three questions let you talk. Uh, the, um, the Jack the Ripper came about because as a, I'd always wanted to write, never write, had written. And as a uh, policeman, a beat policeman, one of the ways of working a beat was you walked along like that at night, just pushing doors and hoping that nothing would open up. If they did, you were in trouble. So, and down, and I was down Upper Thames Street, where but there was the Mermaid Theatre, and there was an old warehouse alongside the Horseshoe Wharf. And I was bouncing along the doorways by the, by the, in the, by the warehouse, and fell through the door. So I was picked up by Sally Miles, the daughter of Birdie Miles, who ran the Burmese Theatre. And I got to know her, because she and her husband had converted part of the warehouse into a theatre for the Margate Stage Company. And uh, they put shows on there. And I sort of used to go there and chat, 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 and I got interested in the sort of criminal aspect and other bits of that. And one day, Sally said to me, this is all fascinating. She said, write us a play and we'll put it on. 
So I said, yes, of course I'll do that. Yeah, so I um, went away and wrote a play. It was only a Scissors and Page job, song, dance and things like that, but they put it on. So I had the upstairs floor, the floor below was Gerald Scarf, who was given his first exhibition, and you could buy Scarf originals for one pound at a, at a, at a time. So this was... Uh, uh, the play went on, so everybody heard that I'd done a play. Jump forward. I'm on point duty outside St Paul's tube station. There were no traffic lights there, so traffic came up to Martin's Grand Cheapside. You know, you, you span, spun there with, with the amount of traffic about. And I'm not there at half past five one day, waving my arms about. And suddenly, PC comes running up. You're to go back to the station. The superintendent wants to see you. Oh, Christ. <laughs> half past five, he's usually on his way home. He's waiting for you. Right? So I went back in, knocked on his door, come in, walked in, he, was, he had his back to me. Run below. Yes? How would you like to write a book? <laughs> and I said, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> We've had a conference. Uh, headquarters and be asked by the police college why is there no history of the city of London police? One, one, one written. So we've had this conference. We found out how much it would cost to have somebody write a book. So that's out. So somebody said, he's only one in the force who can write a book, who's written anything. Oh, Rumblow. Oh, get Rumblow to write a book. <laughs> so I did. It came out as I Spy Blue and published in 71. And, but I had to get information. I had to get papers. And this is where I got the Jack the Ripper papers, because Commissioner said, I do Jack the Ripper. I didn't know anything else about Jack the Ripper. I knew the name. But I thought, oh, well, get Jack the Ripper papers. And, and uh, so the yard, I went along to the yard, and uh, they gave me the Jack the Ripper papers. So I stuck him in my rucksack and took him home. <laughs> um, and I didn't get, and in my history of sitting on the police, I didn't get to Jack the Ripper. <laughs> It finished about in the 1860s, so um, which uh, which was good, which was fine. But I photocopied a lot of what I thought might be interesting of Jack the Ripper files, and then took them back. And of course, later on, when I came to write a book on Jack the Ripper, I I, I, I got I got these files, so I got photocopies. So later on, after the book was published, I was by, by this time friends with Stephen Knight. Stephen said, I'm doing a book on Jack the Ripper. Have you got any material? Can I have material? I said, well, I'm never going to write anything else on Jack the Ripper. Here, you have the lot. And gave them all the files, all the, all the photocopies and things. And that's how they ended up in Stephen's <laughs> file. But that's how I got access to the Jack the Ripper stuff.
It's always interesting to me about, um, I, I wrote a blog many years ago about the whole case in sort of very entry level um, uh, format and it seemed to me that from about 1900 to about Dan Farson really there wasn't many, wasn't much to no, talk mine, about. Mine was I think about the 6th or 7th. Yeah. So when you so so there wasn't a great deal to work on before you got those papers, other than just basic theory and. No, I mean I I knew I met Tom Cull Tom yep. Tom Cullen's book came out, and which and at the same time as Robin O'Dell, so I met yep. Tom and I met Robin, so you know I was able to chat to him. Dan came Dan came Dan came later as did, uh, as did Stephen Knight. Yeah. So it was just a question of nosing around and, yeah. and doing bits and pieces. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what not? That, that, that was that was about it. Yeah. Um, did, did it change much with the? I mean, in terms of interest in the river, did it change much with the, uh, the the Kelly picture, which which I can't believe was found so late. So the the, the which? Yeah. The, the the Miller's Court photo when that was was that sixty nine or something. Found that. Sorry, I've got. Sorry, um, the, 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 I, I, I can't believe that the Mary Kelly photo. Oh, oh the um, Mary Kelly. No, yeah, that, that was found so late, and I, did everything change after that? There was a sort well, of well, the, the, the Kelly, the Kelly. When I, I'd got, I, I, the first thing I found with the Jack the Ripper was, I was, I was, I was when I was just doing research, I happened to be up in photographic an old jury. And I happened to see this glass plate, and it was the one of Mary Kelly's room. And I said, I recognise that because I'd seen drawings. Uh, yeah. And I said, that's Kelly's room. And uh, the sergeant said, uh, yeah. I said, can I have a copy? You know, because I'm doing the history. Well, you can have a copy. Yeah, but you can't have the plate. He said. I said, are there any more? He said, there's a book of them, photographs. You can't look at that either. You can't have it. It was as simple as that. And if you kept run I kept running up against people who said they got things, not just a, a, a Jack the Ripper, but I'm keeping this file because I'm going to use it in, for um, uh, my memoirs. The memoirs never appeared and the file has disappeared. There was one file I managed to lay hands on, and then that was the murder of Captain Binney back in the 1940s. He was, um, there was a court robbery in Cornhill, and he, the naval officer, stepped in front of the car as it drove away and was caught under the car and dragged from Cornhill over London Bridge, where he followed from and died of his injuries. But every year there was the Binney Award, and it's still given by out every year at Goldsmiths Hall, the people who, uh, who, who um, helped the police. The name has now been changed, but it was the Vinnie Award. But I photographed this photo, photocopy this file. Now, it's not a question of just going, photocopy, take one off. It was a question of having to make it negative, put it through the dryer, do a print off, then start the whole thing again to get just one copy. And I got photocopied the complete file well, I have it. I've got to take it up the LMA because I've never used it. But I've got the file, and I don't want that lost either. But uh, otherwise, people said, "Oh, you can't have this, or you can't have that." So I used to go on my roamings, and this is when I found the Jack the Ripper letters. 
They were in the bath, everything had been cleared out. The basement was empty except this cupboard. And I went over and opened it. And all that was in there were these cardboard boxes and the Jack the Ripper letters to the commissioner. There was over 300 of them. And of course, I, I, people, in, people knew about them because the stamp collectors in the force had had a go at them. <laughs> they, 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 they'd, taken, they'd taken the envelopes or, the, or, the, or they'd cut the stamps off. So dating the letters it was, always a, was always a problem. But, so I took those home as well. <laughs> it was a big chest of drawers. <laughs> but but, they, but they, the question was, if, if you didn't take them, they would, dis, they would disappear. They would be thrown. The attitude was to throw them away. I, I, um, stuff like that away. I've got a couple of uh, policemen's histories, which I said to somebody at uh, headquarters some little while back. I said, I've got these, they really need to go to you and then deposit L LMA. I said, who should I give them to? Don't bother, he said, if you hand them in here, he said, they'll, they'll just be thrown in the incinerator or they'll be shredded. So keep them. So that's something else which you've got to go on. But um, that, that's, the way, that's, the way, that's the way the stuff goes. But anyway, so I, I used to sort of collect all sorts of bits and pieces, rate books on things, cause, and, and I used to take them over to the, the, the Guildhall Library, the old Guildhall Library with these big alcoves, where it's alcoves and printed books and long tables where researchers would work. And I used to, the person I used to take stuff to was um, Doc Hollander, and uh, he'd escaped from Austria in pre-Second World War, he escaped, uh, uh, and he was an archaeologist archaeologist at Guildhall Library. So I used to take, uh, 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 take stuff to him. And it was always, he always did it to make it so embarrassing. Because it was an excuse for him, elderly as he was, to go and have a cigarette. I was the excuse. So there'd come a point, he'd stand up and he shuffled along, he was bent over, the old watch chain, hair, he'd take out a cigarette, not like it, hold it up. And he'd start out in, into the, the main library. Wambi, Wambi, let's go to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, that's where we went, have a fag. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'll rather the rabbit is on there. You, you carry on, I could sit here all day. Um, Actually, there was one thing I must tell you, because uh, I, I did, writing a book as a policeman, you were a freak. So the BBC, our publication of the first book, asked to do six pieces on London, and which they were put on the early, uh, new show and I could pick whatever do whatever I liked and I was talking to Andy and one thing I thought I'd do was on the execution places of London this is what prompted the, the conversation and uh, because most of you know Edgware Road the corner of Edgware Road there is a plaque in the middle of the road that says the site of Tyburn Gallows what many people don't know is you walk about 300 yards down the Bayswater Road, there is a convent. 
It's the Tyburn Convent. And these, in the convent, it was dedicated to Catholics who were executed at Tyburn Gallows. It was, this was built in, uh, yeah, uh, in, in the 19th century. And when you, uh, when you go in, you can, as your business going, you go downstairs and there's a chapel. There's an altar. And freestanding over it is the Tyburn Gallows, a replica of the Triangular Gallows. And that stands over the altar, and hang from it hang red altar lamps. Around the walls are framed pieces of cloth, bone, another thing, and prints, all of which were snatched from under the gallows at the time of the execution of Catholics, Catholic priests, particularly Catholic priests. And um, this is what, what is on display. In, 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 in the convent. All the nuns are named after a Catholic martyr. Now I took, went down there with this camera crew and uh, interview a, one of the nuns, or I was asked to interview one of the nuns. And she was a dear old lady. By the way, the nuns never left the convent unless they needed medical treatment, you know, sort of tooth or something like that. And she was a dear old lady, little wisps of hair coming from under her, sort of hood. And I told her what we were doing, about executions. Oh, she was away. What she didn't know about hanging, drawing and quartering. <laughs> <laughs> And she chatted, chatted away on this. And eventually I said, can I ask you, what, what is your name? Uh, yes, and she gave me this lovely smile. I am Mother St. Thomas More. <laughs> um, and that, that was it. But one other thing was, at the executions uh, exhibition recently, they had on trial the Cato Street Axe which was never used on the Cato Street conspirators. But it was there, ready to take their heads off. But instead of using the axe, their, their heads were taken off with a knife. But, um, and it said, you know, it said there, unused. And I thought, you got that wrong, because I've used it. Because when uh, we, at the Museum of London used to be at Kensington Palace. It was over there. And they got, got hold of the axe. Now my producer was a young producer called Liz. And uh, she wanted the sound of what it, what it would be like of the axe going through somebody's neck. Nice. So she brought along a string bag of cabbages. So we're, she's there with the mic and the camera and I've got this to the Cato Street axe, and I'm chopping cabbages <laughs> to try and get the sound of what it would have been like, the axe would have been like to go on through the neck. This is dutifully gathering up all the shredded cabbage. This is for soup tonight. <laughs> so the Cato Street axe has been used for, for, for cutting cabbages. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So you published the complete Jack the Ripper in 75? In 75, yeah. 
I've been asked by a member of our audience if you were had to put a if you to write a revised version of it, what would you add and what would you expunge? Um, I, I I would put I would I would do do more research. I, I spread it out because I put in real life imitators and uh, and, and uh, such like. Um, there's so much one one can actually do. The first part of the book is, is, is really pleased with, yeah. with, with the background. Um, I would dig around, I, I, I would dig, dig around more. I also wouldn't say, as I have done in other things, you know, that there's a chance one day we'll actually get the, get, get the solution. Although, uh, I still, having said that, I still, I still think it's possible. What I always quoted was that I remember asking the right questions, and I remember reading about Leslie Hodson, an American researcher, and he was trying to discover papers relating to the death of Christopher Marlowe, Shakespeare's great contemporary. Now it was known that Marlowe was murdered in a tavern brawl down in Deptford, but no, no, but depending on who was telling the story or reporting, recording the story, the, the, the facts changed. Anyway, Hodson and his wife were in the National Archives, this is the 1920s, and Hodson starts asking all the right questions. And suddenly, and sitting there for 400 years are all the inquest papers on the death of Christopher Marlowe. He's got the lot. And they've all just been sitting in one place, just waiting for somebody to ask the right question to bring them up. Now, the problem, I think, so there's a chance that something may turn up about Jack. But the big problem now is the theft of documents, two things. the theft of documents and the inclusion of documents. Theft of documents still goes on. I know on one occasion there was a guy who was interested in First World War, no, Second World War, War, War pilots. He took over 2,000 documents. Um, I'm taking them and looking after them because they can't keep on, they don't look after properly in the National Archives. In July of this year, there was a case reported of a Belgium ring of thieves who's just stealing documents. They've got, they had so many, they stole so many, the ringleader stole two tons of documents from our national archives throughout Europe. It's taken 20 years to unscramble the quantity of documents and send them back to their original owners or back to uh, uh, the uh, organisations where they were st stolen, stolen from. So there is this great, there is, there is this problem, the theft of documents. The other thing is the insertion of documents into official files, because that's now happened. There was a case several years ago where uh, a researcher said, "I've actually discovered evidence, documents showing that." Winston Churchill was complicit in, in, in a murder, I think it was Sikorsky, the, 
Polish general. And I've got actual documents, and here are the documents. And he did two books on them. Quite, did quite well. He then, then later discovered that somebody, not this particular author, had inserted, faked these documents and inserted them into the official files. So they were turned up as pieces of original documentation. So that's the problem. Apparently, if you want to sell a book, fake a document, put it in, a, in, a, in, a, in another file. There's, it is plenty, there's, plenty, there's plenty of authors here who are probably thinking that right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's what I'll be doing. Adam, be worried. <laughs> um, so you think that the, the, there are still maybe things in the archive now which are yet to come to light? Think, well, not the archive, but somewhere in it. Rumbelow's filing cabinet, as it were. Well, the, well, the, problem, the, the problem with the city, of course, um, it was bombed yeah. quite heavily, and Moorgate was a division, which was completely wiped out and, and, and never rebuilt. And all the other stations got bombed. And so, of course, uh, so um, Cloak, Cloak Lane, Bishopsgate, uh, Snow Hill, Old Drury, all, all, all were hit. And then, of course, you have this this thing, paper salvage. You have these you know these drives post war. This is where a lot, again, I've been told stuff was thrown out and rejected. And again, I remember going, when I went to the yard, um, I can't think of his name, the archivist then, um, I think I'll think of it in a minute. Um, he, he was appointed in 1950, I think it was 1959. And he said, when I came here, he said, um, if they wanted space in the basement, they just used to send somebody down and say, just get rid of X amount of files and make space for the new ones. So, of course, what people were doing, they were just going down, find, if you were interested in a particular case, take the file out, take it home. And I hadn't long been a member of the Met Police History Society when the superintendent came and lectured us. And uh, he said, uh, recently he said, uh, I was asked to uh, meet um, the widow of one of the special branch officers, uh, special branch officers. And uh, he said, when I saw her, she brought along a suitcase full of documents, special branch documents, which her husband had kept to remind him of his past cases. And said, we were very pleased to get these because all of, all of those particular papers had been destroyed in the war. <laughs> Thank heaven for his, for his copies. And it, it was a suitcase for So I'm sure somebody somewhere has got something. They'll turn well, the back up. of a wardrobe or something. Or, or they, they're hanging on to it for value because the problem is, you know, it's sort of like the from hell letter. Everybody, yeah. we all know where it came from. Yeah. Um, and again, coming back to your point, which I missed, the photographs, when I got the Jack the Ripper files in, uh, for pre-71, there were no photographs of Eddowes or Kelly. There were none in the files. And I put in a set of black and white ones in those files, which was subsequently stolen. Oh. And uh, the... Kelly photograph 
are found uh, in the bric-a-brac of the broken up museum. Now you can always tell the original because if you look at it on the reproduction, you can see the mark of a drawing pin where it's pinned to a board, and that's the, that's the that's the original. That's how I always know it. That's that was the original. Okay. <laughs> you will see it quite clearly. It's a drawing yeah. pin. <laughs> yeah. That's extraordinary. Um, I, I was talking about how uh, in the field of virology there's, there's little events dotted occasionally, the discovery of the Cadillac of obviously your work, uh, the Royal Conspiracy. Um, but then we came to the Maybrick diary. What was your, your thoughts on that? Well, I always thought it was a fake. Always. I'm right from the word go, I just didn't believe it. I still don't believe it. So that wouldn't be covered in the new version of the Complete Track the Ripper? It would have been, it would have been covered, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> But no, I, I, I came down very, far, I, I, very firmly against it as a fake. Was, um, that, was that immediate or yeah. was that immediate? You just thought straight away. There's nothing to suggest that this. I just, I just couldn't, but I just, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's you know, it's you just get a gut feeling about some things, and that one, no. And of course, that diary caused so much, so many yeah. problems. Because the word went out, it was worth four million pounds, and suddenly the whole relationship it seemed between Ripper experts, Ripperologists, whatever you like, changed. I mean, when I first met, you know, like Colin Wilson, uh, Tom Cullen, uh, Dan Parson, it was all very friendly. But suddenly, after the, the, that damn diary, there was a note of viciousness came into yeah. relationships, and it, it got it got really unpleasant. And of course, you get accusations. I mean, I've had it. Where did he steal the papers from? Where did he? Especially when I did the old boss letter, and I gave that to the archives. You could have got twenty thousand pounds for that, but I didn't have it for that. I got it and it meant to go in an archive. It was not mine. I had the use of it, fine. I've had fun from it, fine. But it goes in an archive. I've no doubt it'll probably disappear. It's like when I put the Sydney Street stuff in to the LMA. There was the letter from Sydney Street written by Fritz Zars out to a uh, family. And I said, look, I've marked this. This holding it up this was worth a lot of money to somebody, the last letter out of Sydney Street, a collector would pay a lot for it. Can I ask you just to note this? But I dare say, but I'd be nothing surprising to hear that it had gone. Um, but all you can do is I say, say, shove stuff in the archives and let other people, let other people have fun. If you're shown to be wrong, fine. You're wrong. If, it's, if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if, it, if you're right, great. But I'm not going to lose any sleep about it. I'm the research first. I'm not going to worry about, worry about it. I don't, don't cling to it. If I has to, if, if evidence changes, the evidence changes. Yeah, fine. But that, that's my attitude. Yeah, well. the research yeah. comes first. It should be for the entire yeah. field, not yeah. the personal game. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to throw this open to the uh, the audience. I'm going to rove around like in those game shows. Um, so can you raise your <laughs> How many people have got a question for Don Romero? 
everyone. Hi, hi there, can you hear me? Can you hear me, Donald? I can hear yeah. you, yeah. So I've always been um, intri intrigued by your view um, of Liz Stride as possibly not a victim, because I've always thought that really it's, it's too much of a coincidence, a sex worker in the same area on the same night, and the explanation as to why she wasn't um, more mutilated is obvious, um, Dean shoots. But you've often said that you think that it was not a ripper. I, um, I actually, not often said, I, it's only in recent years I've said I don't think that she was a, yeah, couldn't uh, you? a Jack the Ripper victim. Um, going off the top of my head, you've got, you've got this scene going on in the street, and it's obviously a domestic where the man is trying to drag her into a doorway. She's, she's resisting. She's also been waiting for somebody. She's been walking up and down that street for ages in the pouring rain, waiting for somebody. When she is attacked, the knife that's used is much too small uh, to uh, what, what, was what was used on Edo's later, later that night. Um, I can't try to pick it out, but I, I, I definitely think it, it was a domestic that we're looking at and, and, not, a, 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 and not, a, not a murder. That's why I say I think it makes it more interesting if you can imagine that the river is actually out to kill and he kills Eddowes, but he doesn't know of the other murder, or all that. In fact, there are out police looking for him uh, when he hasn't. When he, you know, he's just about to do to, to do the particular, that particular murder. But uh, as I say, I'm sorry, I can't give you the detail. But I know I argued it in the later editions of the book. But I, I still think she was a um, it was a, it was domestic, and in fact. Some of the policemen at the scene reckoned that it was a domestic, so, uh, not, uh, not a river killing. Thank you. Any more? I'm getting my steps in. Following on from the last question, so of the Whitechapel murders, how many of the victims do you think were down to the same serial killer that we know as Jack Lee? Um. Um, <laughs> forget my name. I think the, the um, Annie, Annie Chapman, Polly, Polly, Polly Nichols, uh, Eddowes, and Kelly. So the most four. Uh, that's what, and I, I certainly dropped Stride out. But uh, that's a, 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 as I go. Do you not think that Martha Tabron may have been the first victim, possibly, but, and then? Jack the Ripper evolved in his killing. No, I, 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 got, I, always, I always left her out. I didn't, I didn't think, I didn't think she was. And I, I say, I went, I went straight, straight from the, from the Nichols. Again, with this, it's all personal preference, isn't it? You know, it's all of trying to, to, to look, look at locations and such like. Um, no, I, 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 I'm sorry not to be more, can't be more helpful, but. Uh, that, that, that's it. I just think of, of, of the four. No, it's interesting to have your view. Thank you. Thank you very much. Who's next? Hi, Don. Um, in terms of the killing stopping, um, it's generally, generally agreed that Jack the Ripper stopped for one of three reasons. Either he was incapacitated in some way, so he was ill or died, 
he was incarcerated somewhere so he couldn't kill or he moved away somewhere else but one thing that's never really spoken about is the possibility that he just stopped killing and I know that goes against everything it we... doesn't because I agree with you yeah and the, and the case I would close uh, the um, case in, in the States uh, the uh, D'Angelo the scout sorry oh sorry yeah. Bind, torture, bind, torture, and kill. Okay. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Um, bind, torture, and kill. I mean, he stopped, and it was only the fact that the newspaper came up what twenty year, twenty years later, that he suddenly said, "I'm still here." And of course, that's where they got him. He was a scout master, he was a respected member of his community, he got a family. But he just, he, and, and he sent in the photographs that of, he'd actually taken of the victims. But the BTK killer, yeah, uh, uh, he stopped. And if he hadn't wanted to, he had to boast, which of course is what got him. Uh, 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 but, uh, so yes, yeah, so I, using that as my one example, I would say yes, it is possible. And D'Angelo as well, the Golden State killer, yeah. who raped and murdered in the 70s and 80s and then stopped around about 85, 86, mm. and then was arrested 30 years later, having raised a family, stopped yeah. killing. So you see, you answered your own question. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but why do you think then it's not really spoken about amongst ripperologists? Because it seems to me a distinct possibility. I mean, a lot of people believe that Jack was not motivated by killing. He was motivated by the ritual and the mutilations and perhaps with what he did to Mary Jane Kelly, I mean, it would hardly be possible to mutilate a human body more, and perhaps he had fulfilled his mission. Well, I, I always thought that with the last, with the, with the Kelly killing, he'd done everything. When he, with the mutilations he did there, he'd done everything he could yeah. to evict him. The others, of course, were outside. He didn't have, he didn't have time, or it wasn't possible, but he got that one indoors, and once he'd done that, that was it. Yeah. Uh, 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 Finney. And uh, just retire. Just get, not retire. That's a stupid word. But he would stop. I mean, one thing I always imagined, I mean, you still get people, oh, the Duke of Clarence, somebody of the gentry, somebody peer of the realm, driving Whitechapel. I mean, the density of population there. Was enormous, and anyone like that would have, uh, but but stuck out like a sort like a sort of like a like a sore thumb. They would have been picked up and picked up very very quickly. Um, I know as, as a policeman, you 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 could I, I could be off duty and I could be I'd be picked out as a copper. I once went to I had to go up to a sort of a woman's open air prison in Staffordshire, and I was up there for a few few days and. Uh, I was actually on holiday. I remember coming back from the village. I, I was unshaven. I wanted, it, was, it was summer, summer clothes, tired. Coming back, carrying some shopping, and in came a new intake into the prison. And they were women were lined up, got new column, and started marching down the drive towards the main block, of the prison. Time so stole along there. I was talking to somebody and. Catch, you know, with, with, with the bags of shopping, hot, sticky, and we draw a level. This column, the, the, the column and I, I look at them, they look at me, 
and a woman turned on the front row, turned round and said, and said in a very loud voice, <coughs> Bleeding copper, ain't he? <laughs> <laughs> so much for your disguise of some of shopping. Yeah, they'd, they'd have been picked out very quickly. I imagine Jack, with his standing there with bloodstained clothes, you know, perhaps even a smock. Hugging himself and thinking, don't know if I'm sorry. Your mic's off. Sorry. Your mic's off. Sorry. Oh, that's on. That's on. That's on. That's just on. You didn't have it. I just didn't have it. Um, yeah. I imagine him standing there, hugging himself and thinking, I did all this. I all this. This is mine. And he's going to be, he's not going to stand out from anyone else in, in the crowd there. He's going to be quite, quite ordinary. That's, that's my view of Jack anyway. I find the extraordinary thing about Dennis Rader, I know we're going off topic here, is that when he sent his CD-ROM to the police, he said to them, I've got something to send you, can you trace me from a CD-ROM? And they said, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, I'll do that then. I'll see you in about a week. Uh, more questions, please. Oh, we're back again. the second one since no one was putting um uh i'm re i was i've often thought that martin fido got close um and his um david cohen was possible um the trouble i've always had with david cohen though is that he only spoke um yiddish in the asylum and we know that the ripper spoke english to some extent um you know we know that he's he he spoke to um, his victims. Did Martin Fido, and I'm asking you because he's not around anymore, did he ever address that point? I don't think so. No. Not that, not that I'm aware not that I'm aware, aware of. No. I mean, it was always a bit of a joke with us about David Cohen, you know, because uh, um, I wasn't the only one. You just used to laugh at oh, Dr. David bloody Cohen again at Martin. <laughs> you can get quite cross about it. You can get quite cross about it. As I say, with, with, with and authors, you can, you know, you, 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 you're, with this ripperology, you're on very dangerous territory. I mean, I mentioned Stephen Knight. Lovely guy. Really lovely guy. And, um, as you all know, he sort of died of a, died, died, died of a brain, of brain, brain tumor. Although, funny enough, I was doing a Jack the Ripper walk and uh, I happened to mention uh, Stephen Knight and somebody said, oh, he was murdered by the Freemasons. So I said, no, he wasn't. He wrote an article about his illness and uh, what happened and he was dying. You're a bloody liar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, he was murdered by the Freemasons. What that was that? Anyway, Stephen, as I say, I'd given him all my, my, my stuff and... Uh, he did his book, uh, he did his book, and uh, the, um, the foreword was written by Richard Whittington Egan, who was a friend, a friend of both of us. So on publication day, Richard done this lovely foreword, and uh, we all met at the, the, the Stephen, myself, John Hill, who worked at a local shop, and 
Fitch Richard, the Florissant Four Office, and um, it was um, we were having a celebratory drink, publication day. And Richard looked at Stephen, and remember he's done this beautiful book forward, saying how brilliant it is. He says, "Wonderful book, beautifully written." Rubbish, my dear fellow. <laughs> Absolute rubbish. <laughs> and Stephen, understandably, looked as though he'd been hit with a sledgehammer. <laughs> and of course, later on, when I criticised Stephen, where's my copy of your book? Where's my uh, your copy of my book? Took it off the shelf. Stephen opened up with as much abuse as I can muster in the next edition. <laughs> Yeah, so that's, uh, that's how that's how it worked, or it, or it could go. You know, some, some would quite lively. Catch Dan Farson early in the morning, he was great. Later in the day, he was absolute lethal. But, um, interesting guy, anyway. Brilliant. If there's no more questions, yes. well, yes, there are. First of all, thank you very much for coming to speak to us. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Um, I just wondered what you. Um, Think of the book *The Five by Howe. <laughs> she thought I was one of the nicest people she'd met. She apparently she didn't meet anyone in the Ripper, any Ripper, Ripper world because I, I went along to her. Uh, she did a reading at, or she did a talk at the London Library, and I was there. And I asked a question and criticised. You can. You, 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 she said, uh, "You criticise my book. I'll criticise. I'll criticise yours if you do one." I said, "You've already read it. It's in your list of references." <laughs> but um, no, because I just—it's only one thing. You know, if the death of Catherine Eddowes is so rubbish it's absolutely you, you i could never read that and think you you it's been a great thunderstorm it's been pouring with rain the ground is wet and you're you're saying she curled up in a corner of my 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 square to have a little nap oh, this, this is this is ridiculous but the one thing that actually i i, I was pleased about i said earlier on policemen punching doorways i suddenly saw that photograph of the corner of the square opposite to where Edo's was lying. And I suddenly realized why the policeman who came into the square when the Ripper was with the victim had not seen her. And it comes down to checking doors and boundaries. The policeman, I, I checked that same door when I was, uh, when I was a PC at Bishopsgate umpteen times and you came down the passage, pushed or shook, and, 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 and went on. And he suddenly realised it had been pouring with rain, the policeman had probably been sheltering. You had to meet the inspector, even even when I was a PC, you had to meet the inspector or the sergeant, or else it was a disciplinary offence. And so he'd obviously, he was in a hurry, you beat, just came down the passage, his beat ended at the end of the passage, checked the door, turned around and walked out. Didn't go into the square, didn't even look in the square, it was raining, or it had generally raining. That's why he didn't see the river with his victim. He wasn't looking now. 
the concern was get your beat done and get to meet you you get to meet your sergeant and inspector that was it otherwise you're disciplinary offense and uh, as i say that that was my explanation they put it you know in whitechapel magazine so you weren't impressed with the sorry you weren't impressed with the did I sky the ground? No, I wasn't. <laughs> Sorry. Brilliant, thank you. I'm just going to ask uh, before we, we, we close this, um, just one question for me personally, and possibly from Ruby too, because it's my own personal interest. George Hutchison. Who? What? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've just answered the question. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. What's the story? Did he just make that up just to get, or is there anything in it? I've got to the stage now where I'm forgetting things. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, George Hutchinson, yes, with Mary, with Mary yeah. Kelly. Yeah. I think. I think he. Uh, no, I'm. I'm sorry, I can't give an honest answer. I, I think uh, I've come to this because you, you say when someone from the gentry, if they're walking around Whitechapel, they're going to yeah. stick out, and he chooses yeah. the one man yeah. as a description who would stick out in the worst. Well, he would with all, with all with all with all the asking yeah. the tank yeah. and, 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 and the watch and all that stuff. I don't know. Uh, he, 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 may, he may have been. He may have been a. Uh, he may have owned property or something. No, I, I'm, I'm waffling here. No, okay. I, d I, d I don't know. We I don't know if he's authentic or not. seen something. Yeah. But I, I can't. We're I not can't, sure. I, I, I've got too far away from it now. Okay, that's no problem. Well, before, uh, can I ask you to give your appreciation for John? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And before you go, Donald, can Adam, can I ask you to come up? <laughs> it's got some uh, I am Jack written on it. Uh, <laughs> I've been coming to the East End for a long time. Um, Don was saying about the small number of books coming out in the 70s before that. Um, so long I've been coming here that when I got a cab here this morning, I asked him to take me to the shooting star. And it took five minutes before we both realised it's now called The Astronomer for the last ten years. Um, and it wasn't until Mark... Galloway formed the Cloak and Dagger Club, now the Whitechapel Society, there was an opportunity for people to meet Don and other people. Um, so it's a bit scary when you get a chance to meet your heroes. I say, don't meet your heroes. But I've met Paul Begg, he's a nice guy. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I was in Whitechapel with Paul and, and Keith Skinner one day in probably the mid-90s. I think there was a Whitechapel Society meeting that night, and Paul said, let's go and uh, meet Don at the start of his tour at Tower Hill, is that right? So I hadn't met Don before, and I was a bit, okay, that's quite exciting, I'll go and uh, come along on the tour with uh, safety of Paul and Keith. We got there, they said hello, said, right, we're broken off to the pub now, we'll leave you with Don. So I was marching around, Don was doing this tour, and I was sort of keeping pace with him, feeling a little bit nervous, a bit anxious. Um, Don was very kindly saying, or you probably know as much as I do, don't don't uh, pull me up on any mistakes. Um, very, very humble of him. But um, I think everyone agrees, everyone knows Don very well. Um, he's very generous with his time, very, um, as I say, very humble. And he's a big inspiration, I think, not only his books, walking guides, you know how to um, do a tour if you've seen Don do a tour. 
This is something that we normally do at the end of the uh, end of the weekend. Anyone who's been here before, it's a little outstanding contribution award. Um, it's named after our late friend Kate Amin, who would love to have been here and met you. She always said her two favourite reprologists were Don and Martin Fido. I think she preferred Martin, but she'd been <laughs> <laughs> she'd been absolutely thrilled to be here to present this. So, the outstanding contribution for 2023, Don Rumbelow. And that was an audience with Donald Rumbelow, the first presentation kicking off the 2023 East End Conference. I would like to thank the organizers of this event for making the release of the talks available to Rippercast again this year. Be sure to check out the podcast episode listings for all of the past conference talks that we've been privileged enough to share with you over the years. And you can find out more about the East End Conference by joining their group on Facebook, cleverly named East End Conference. And I'd like to thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.